Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 277. King Athelstan, say yes to the dress. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And thank you very much to... Actually, hold on, this music isn't quite right. There. And thank you very much to Laura Palmer, that's true by the way, Zara, and Gareth for signing up already. And Laura, I thought you were dead. Anyway, if you'd like to join Laura in her fight to keep this show independent, despite its occasional reference to a really weird David Lynch TV show, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. It's important to hit the ground running when you start a new job, especially if it's one that carries a lot of responsibility. When you're new, people are often trying to work out who you are and how you're going to fit into the system. And the best way to put people at ease is to work diligently to get up to speed as quick as possible. And most of us have seen what happens when someone doesn't do that, and they just come into the job in a casual, laid-back manner and kind of kick their feet up. It doesn't go well. So consequently, for most of us, when we take on a new job, it comes with a lot of pressure in those first few weeks, because we really want to make an impression. And that's just a normal job. You can imagine the sort of social pressure a monarch must have been under in the Anglo-Saxon system. Especially if his legitimacy was questioned, he was raised in a foreign land at a time when xenophobia was a cultural cornerstone, and he was so controversial that some of his own nobles tried to blind him when he was at the capital. I mean, Athelstan was raised in Mercia, he had nasty rumors spread about him, and he came to the throne under a cloud of rather suspicious deaths. Even if he was innocent of everything, it didn't look good. And then there was the matter of Wessex. I mean, Wessex and succession, well, they didn't often get along too well. I mean, Athelstan had to have been all too aware of the fact that when his father took the throne, he faced an immediate rebellion. And that happened even though Alfred had spent years bolstering Edward's claim. And Athelstan didn't have that luxury. He might have been the eldest child of King Edward, but at every turn, Athelstan's political fortunes had been undercut by his father rather than built up. And so here he was, already facing some staunch and violent opposition. So it was pretty clear that Athelstan wasn't intended to be sitting on the throne of Wessex. However, here he was. So he had to move quickly and demonstrate why he deserved to be there. And he had to move even quicker to consolidate his power base. Otherwise, there was a good chance that he would be the target of even more attacks. So on September 4th of 925, at Kingston-upon-Thames, Athelstan was invested with all the regalia of his office and the raw power that came with being Anglorum Saxonum Rex. And I'm guessing that the first thing that was on his mind was how he needed to move decisively to secure his position. So imagine that you're Athelstan. How would you go about it? What would you do? Well, maybe you could go the way of Alfred, Athelflaed, and Edward and go on a construction spree. But the problem with that is that much of the fortress that was now Wessex had already been built by his father and grandfather. And Mercia had similarly been fortified by Athelflaed and to a lesser extent, his father as well. So the opportunities for that were a bit limited. What about launching a war to show your military chops? Well, the trouble there was that Wessex had been at war for ages, 
and war during this period was carried out by the public, not by a small professional army. So war exhaustion was likely a very real thing among Athelstan's new subjects. And if he launched a war, it was unlikely to be a popular one, because the manner in which a war starts matters. Defending the realm is one thing, but if Athelstan launched a war because he wanted to prove that he was tough, that probably wouldn't make him many friends. Eventually, his nobles would notice that he caused them to lose a bunch of their peasants in service of what is essentially a vanity project. So just starting a war was probably a no-go as well. But bolstering your military and strategic presence wasn't the only way to enhance your stature in the Middle Ages. It wasn't even the most common way. Athelstan had a much bigger card up his sleeve, especially since he was part of a large and powerful dynasty. He had marriage. Through marriage, Athelstan could significantly strengthen his political position within Wessex and beyond, but only if he played the game well. Because here's the problem with marriage. You're only supposed to do it once. Now granted, there are plenty of ways to do it more than once, but a lot of them would run the risk of really irritating the church, and many times your in-laws as well. So for the most part, marriage is a one-shot gun. And the funny thing about marriage is that it's actually a valuable diplomatic tool even when it's not being used. And we've talked about this in a bit more detail in an earlier episode. But if I'm a monarch and I want to keep large numbers of dynasties compliant and obedient to my will, well, dangling the prospect of marriage is one way I can do that. But that power to just dangle it out there immediately evaporates the minute that I actually marry someone. Suddenly, I lose the carrot, and there's a good chance that the other dynasties that I didn't pick will feel spurned. So it's a double-edged sword. And if you were Athelstan, would you really want to wield it? The answer is actually yes, just not in the way we've been talking about it. Because Athelstan wasn't the only person whose marriage carried political weight. Athelstan was part of a big family, and that was because Edward had been just as effective on the marriage bed as he was on the battlefield, and so Athelstan had siblings and half-siblings for days. And so the Mercian Register tells us that upon taking the throne, Athelstan went right to work marrying them off. The entry for 924 says, quote, In this year, King Edward died at Farndon in Mercia, and his son Ilfweir died very soon after at Oxford, and their bodies are buried at Winchester. And Athelstan was chosen by the Mercians as king and consecrated at Kingston, and he gave his sister in marriage, end quote. Now, much like we've spoken about in previous episodes, the scribes in the register are doing that thing where they list a bunch of events that happen in the future, all under the banner of one year. In the Dark Ages, timeline science was in its infancy. And we actually know that not all of those events that I just read happened in 924. For example, we know that Athelstan wasn't consecrated as king until September 4th of 925, and that was a year later. And giving his sister away in marriage seems to have happened after he ascended to the throne. And based upon related documents, it seems that it happened on the following year, in 926. Unfortunately, while we can reasonably pin down when the marriage happened, the Register and the Chronicle don't really tell us which sister was married, 
nor who she was married to. But by looking at other documents regarding the marriages of Athelstan's siblings, we can find that actually there were two sisters who got married in 926. And that means that this entry could have been regarding either one, or maybe even both. But here's the thing about these marriages. They were both brilliant political moves. Now, chances are the first of the two marriages was on January 30th of 926. And our record for that marriage comes from version D of the Chronicle. We're told that, quote, In this year, King Athelstan and Citric, king of the Northumbrians, met together at Tamworth on 30th January, and Athelstan gave him his sister in marriage, end quote. Now, did he catch that? We're hearing about Citric. That's the same Citric who first appeared in our story raiding northern Mercia. The same Citric who, upon becoming king of Jorvik, spurned King Edward's overlordship and reversed the kingdom's coinage policy by removing Edward from the coins. You know, that Citric. And he was the same Citric who was now sitting down to meet with Edward's son, Athelstan. And they were busy discussing marriage. That's an enormous shift in the political fortunes on both sides of the Humber. Furthermore, did you notice where it was taking place? They didn't meet in Jorvik. King Citric came to Athelstan, but he didn't go to Winchester. Even though that's the traditional West Saxon seat of power, Athelstan didn't hold this important meeting there. Instead, he chose Tamworth, the capital of Mercia and where he spent large portions of his life. And this is potential evidence that Athelstan was realigning the political winds within his kingdom. Of course, it's also possible that Athelstan just liked having two eyes, and he wasn't yet convinced that all the rebellious nobles in Winchester had been found and dealt with. That's entirely possible as well. But either way, it was a big change in West Saxon policy. The other thing that's interesting about this entry is the timing of the meeting. We're talking about a tectonic shift in the political balance of Britain, and when you look at the timing of it, it's taking place only four months after Athelstan took the throne. Just four months. That's remarkably soon after Athelstan's succession. I mean, at this point, Athelstan was probably still picking out the curtains. Yet here he was taking part in a face-to-face -face negotiation with one of his biggest potential rivals, Jorvik. And speaking of Jorvik, think about who this was. Jorvik was the last holdout of the Danish-occupied territories. East Anglia, the Five Boroughs, and all their allies south of the Humber had been annexed during the West Saxon Mercian advance. Only Jorvik remained. And Jorvik, formerly Northumbria, had a very rocky relationship with their southern neighbors up until this point. We've repeatedly seen their fleets and armies coming south to support their Danish allies, or even launching attacks of their own. But at the same time, they've also on occasion shown a willingness to engage in diplomacy. For example, the old ruling order of Northumbria was willing to work with Tamworth, as demonstrated by the fact that they were in the process of submitting to Athelflaed when she suddenly died. And here's where all of that gets super interesting for me. Northumbria showed no interest in submitting to Edward even though Edward annexed all of Athelflaed's lands and titles. So that suggests that Northumbria's deal for submission wasn't because of power and proximity. It was personal. It was a deal with Athelflaed. 
because Edward, after his sister's death, held even more land and soldiers than Athelflaed did. And he was sitting right on Northumbria's border. And despite that, Jorvik was completely disinterested in accepting him as their overlord. And some of you right about now might be saying, well, what about that treaty where Edward became the overlord of Jorvik and the Scots and pretty much everyone else? Well, don't forget the timing of that treaty. That happened after Ragnald essentially conquered Northumbria and turned it into the kingdom of Jorvik. And while Ragnald seems to have kept on a lot of the previous nobles, the posture of the kingdom changed dramatically once he took it over and made it Jorvik. He seems to have been calling a lot of the shots. Consequently, while it seems like many of the Northumbrian nobles weren't fond of Edward or the West Saxons, that might not have mattered all that much if Ragnald wanted the treaty to happen. He was all-powerful within his lands at this point. So even if his nobles were hesitant, who was going to tell him no? And I think it's a really important piece of the puzzle that when Ragnald died and his cousin Citric took over, Jorvik immediately reversed course and spurned Edward. That could be an indication that the nobles north of the Humber weren't pleased with Edward, and that Citric's new policy was his effort at keeping his new subjects happy. And then, suddenly, with the death of Edward and the rise of Athelstan, Citric's policy is reversed, and suddenly discussions are open. You kind of get a sense of what a big deal this meeting in Tamworth between Athelstan and Citric was, don't you? Now, historians tend to agree that the main subject of this meeting at Tamworth wasn't marriage. Athelstan wasn't saying, look, I got sisters for days and I've got to offload some of them before the market for my sisters bottoms out. And I heard your wife died recently, so would you like a sister? No, the purpose of this meeting was political. Athelstan was seeking something significant. Something that Citric hadn't been willing to give while Edward was on the throne. Athelstan wanted overlordship over Citric and Jorvik. It was a big ask. But Athelstan didn't come empty-handed. In exchange, he would give Citric his sister's hand in marriage. And not just any sister. Athelstan's only full sister. The only other child of Edward and Egwin. And if you're wondering what her name is, so am I. And actually, so was William of Malmesbury. No one knows. But even though her name went unrecorded, her marriage to Citric was the linchpin of an enormous change in British diplomatic relations. King Athelstan, within mere months of taking the throne, was re-establishing a relationship that had begun with his aunt, but had broken down under his father's rule. And he wasn't done. He had other sisters. And it was only the 30th of January. Still plenty of time left in the year. And then, sometime later that year, a massive delegation arrived from Francia, bringing huge amounts of gifts and laying them at the feet of Athelstan. They came virtually begging for the hand of Athelstan's sister in marriage. And when that happened, I wonder what the nobles of Wessex thought. I mean, Athelstan hadn't been sitting on the throne for a year, and here were the Franks bestowing honors upon him. And if they didn't know the context of why this was happening, I have to imagine that, to these nobles, he must have looked like the Sun King. But context here is everything. 
And while it sometimes can be complicated, it's critical for us to understand why Athelstan's first year kind of feels like the coronation of Aragorn, where you're left looking around for the elves of Rivendell. And the reason for this delegation of the Franks goes way back, like way farther than you might think. Across the Channel, in Francia, a political crisis had been brewing. And Athelstan, as the inheritor of the line of Wessex, was now involved in that crisis because his family and the Franks had been closely linked for generations. While the very first cross-channel links probably started all the way back with King Athelbert of Kent, for the House of Wessex, the Frankish ties began with Athelstan's great-great-grandfather, Egbert. And those links occurred when he was forced into exile by King Offa, and he spent three years in the court of Charlemagne. For Athelstan's family, that was likely the first serious link between the two kingdoms. And following that period, we saw a number of changes in the political structure of Wessex, and they reflected many of the things that Egbert saw when he stayed with Charlemagne. And the West Saxons would continue to forge those cross-channel ties, with the later marriage of Athelstan's great-grandfather, Athelwulf, to Charlemagne's great-granddaughter, Judith. But the ties between the two kingdoms went well beyond marriage. Carolingian influence continued to make his mark in court, with changes not just to policy, but also staffing. Athelwulf even hired a Frankish secretary. His name was Felix. And it was with Athelstan's grandfather, Alfred, that we saw some of the most significant shifts towards the Franks. His efforts to reform English Christianity were carried out in order to bring it in line with what was happening across the Channel. Furthermore, by hiring the Frankish scholar Grimbald of Flanders, as well as John the Old Saxon, Asser, and the Mercian scholars in the 880s, Alfred was building a court school, much like what Charlemagne had. And this Alfredian renaissance wasn't just constrained to his court. It flourished and spread throughout the upper echelons of the kingdom, often by direct mandate by Alfred himself. And, like his forebears, Alfred wasn't just making cultural shifts. He was also engaging in cross-channel marriages, solidifying these bonds. And that's why we see him marrying his daughter, Ailthrith, to the powerful Frankish nobleman, Count Baldwin II of Flanders, who was actually the son of Judith. And this continued into the reign of Edward as well. As you might remember, on the same year that Athelflaed died, Edward married one of his daughters, Aid Gifu, to King Charles the Simple of West Francia and Lotharingia. And overall, that was actually a really good idea because it substantially strengthened Edward's political clout. The trouble with the marriage, though, was that Charles the Simple wasn't all that popular with his nobles, and he ended up getting deposed by King Robert I, who was later replaced by King Rudolf. And that brings us to the time of Athelstan. By the time that Athelstan took the throne of Wessex, Rudolf was reigning over West Francia, Charles was imprisoned in the Somme Valley, and his wife, Aid Gifu, who was Athelstan's half-sister, as well as his son Louis, who was Athelstan's nephew, had fled to the court of Wessex. Meaning that hanging out in the back of the West Saxon court were the family of deposed King Charles of West Francia. And that was a really important matter for the new ruling dynasty of Francia. Because Charles's Carolingian allies were still out there, and they were fighting to restore him to the throne. And that was a big problem for the new ruling dynasty of West Francia. 
And the fact of the matter is that Wessex was a significant military power in the West. Over the last couple generations, the kingdom had been turned into a machine of war. And so King Rudolf of West Francia was left wondering, what would happen if this new King Athelstan decided to use that machine to restore his brother-in-law, Charles, to the throne? But King Rudolf had a solution for that. While Athelstan was the brother-in-law to Charles the Simple, and there wasn't much that Rudolf could do about that, if Athelstan became the brother-in-law to both sides of this conflict, then surely he'd have to stay neutral, right? At least hopefully. Maybe. And as luck would have it, Rudolf's brother-in-law, see, everyone here is a brother-in-law to someone as far as I can tell, because nobles. Anyway, Rudolf's brother-in-law was a guy named Hugh the Great, and he was in need of a wife. And as a bonus, Hugh was actually from a really good family. He was the son of King Robert I of West Francia, who just happened to be the guy who deposed Charles. So, if he could arrange a marriage between Hugh and the House of Wessex, that would link their dynasties and hopefully tamp down any threat that the Anglo-Saxons might weigh in on the Carolingian efforts to restore Charles. And so Athelstan's cousin, Count Adolf, arrived on the shores of Britain, mere months after Athelstan took the throne of Wessex. And he came offering enormous amounts of gifts and asked that the new king of Wessex offer one of his sisters in marriage to Duke Hugh the Great. And politically, this all makes perfect sense. But if you were just Thane Unferth, watching the powerful Franks offering luxuries and seeking to curry favor with your new king, practically begging to form a dynastic union with his family, wouldn't you start to wonder if you misjudged the guy? And that maybe he wasn't the embarrassing bastard you assumed he was? So those were the opening moves to Athelstan's reign. In two simple arrangements, he forged an overlordship over Jorvik by marrying his sister to King Citric, and he reinforced his family's ties to the new ruling dynasty of the Franks by marrying his half-sister, Aedhild, to Duke Hugh the Great. And he did all of this while maintaining his link with the Carolingians by providing sanctuary to the deposed Queen Aedgifu and to young Louis a boy who would become King Louis IV of France. It's important to make an impression when you first start a job, and Athelstan was certainly doing that. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.